So this morning we're back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're in verse 14 and 15 this morning. We already went, with the last sermon we did 13 and 14a. So we're going to overlap with 14a again this time since we're doing 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now you might remember that Paul had been accused by some in the Corinthian church of ministering out of evil motives, out of selfish motives. So in 2 Corinthians, he has been opening his heart to the Corinthians in his letter to them so that they can really know him and what's in his heart. He's revealing what makes him tick here. Some false apostles who had infiltrated the church in Corinth, lived for themselves and not for Christ, and were completely blind to what people like Paul had in their hearts, what they were like inside. And so, what does he say to explain himself? He says, look... I am controlled by the love of Christ. He died for all his people. He died in their place, bearing as their substitute the penalty they deserved. And in his death, all his people died as well. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. And now that they've all died, his people no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised from the dead for them. That's who I am, he says. I am a former enemy of Christ and his people, but I died with Christ. That old man died with Christ. And now I live for him, controlled by his love. So there are just two parts of the sermon this morning. First, what it means that in, his, in Christ's death we have all died, those who believe in him. And second, the notion of living for him who died for us. So first, the notion that all have died in Christ. Most of us understand what Paul means that Christ has died for all. We hear about that all the time. But what does it mean that therefore all have died? This is how Paul explains that he, who had once been controlled by hatred, is now controlled by love. Christ died for him, and therefore he has died too, and so now lives for Christ. So how can we understand that all believers have died with Christ? How does the death of Christ 
mean a kind of death for each believer? How do we die in his death? It seems to me that what Paul is saying is something like this. When a person comes to life in Christ, he also comes to death in his old self. Death to his old self. As Paul says just a few verses later, two verses later, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. The old has died. The new has come. So in coming to Christ, the old man dies. Because of Christ's death for us, we are not only forgiven and given new life, we are also conquered, subdued, captured by him. So there is a certain death in the experience as well. Captured, though, by his love. This is why the love of Christ controls us. Because we have died to our old selves, which were controlled by our old fleshly impulses. And we have come alive in Christ. It is Christ in us who now holds sway. And we are controlled by his love. I think the best verse that says almost the exact same thing as what Paul's saying here, that's more familiar to us, is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So here he says the same thing. that you know, As he died, we died with him. I have been crucified with Christ. So it is no longer I who live. That man died. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. It is Christ who lives in me. That's my new life. So here's the deal. Christ gives us his life, but we die in receiving it. When you take Christ, you let go of your old life. You can't serve Christ and still be your old self. You are a new Christ-filled self. You must be born again. And being born again means a kind of dying. You know, in Isaiah chapter 5, there's a parable, one of the few in the Old Testament, where God is, has a vineyard. And he cultivates these vines and then he expects them to give him a fruitful crop. But instead of good edible grapes... The vineyard yields wild, inedible grapes. That is, 
inedible, not uninedible. Wild, inedible grapes. So, you know, you have this picture of this vineyard full of vines with bad grapes. So how do you turn that? Now, here I'm going beyond the parable. I'm using the parable as an illustration. How do you go, how do you turn that vineyard into a good vineyard that gives you the right kind of grapes? Well, you can't, you know, talk to the vines and try to get them to change the kind of grapes that they produce. You can't um, take out, remove all the wild grapes and go in and staple on good grapes onto each of the clusters. The only way to, to transform that vineyard is to start over. You have to get rid of the old vines and plant new vines in their place. That's the only way. And that's what happens when you become a Christian. There's a certain death. There's a certain removal. There's a certain discarding of who we were that is involved in coming to Christ. Death is part of coming alive. Just like you can't have real life without dying to your addiction. You've dealt with someone who's addicted. His whole life is controlled by something. Well, for him to, to come to real life, he's got to die to his addiction. And this is, you know, this is just obvious. This is people who are in the world of working with addicts. This is, they know this very well. You can't just cut down on your, the thing that... <clears throat> The thing that you're addicted to. You have to die to it. You can't have Jesus by trying a little bit of him. You have to die. You know, down through history, many have tried to accept Jesus and add him to their collection of gods. But Jesus refuses to be included in our pantheon of gods. He says no man can serve two masters. You have to die. When Jesus looks at the throne of your heart, he doesn't say, move over, make a place for me. He says, this is mine. This is mine. No one comes to Jesus as his Lord. We only come to Jesus as his surrendering captive. It seems to me that this is, a, that this is what a whole lot of folks don't like about the idea of becoming a Christian. It's the dying. Just like an addict who doesn't want to give up the very thing that's killing him. Of course, this is completely contrary to human nature. By nature, 
We are self-willed. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We want to do things our way. We think we know the best about what's best for us. And we can't just decide to stop being that way and start living for Christ. We need to be changed. And only God can do that. You see, in the Bible, becoming a Christian is not a process of trying hard to do the right thing. And it's not just a process even of being declared justified and forgiven. It's a process of death and resurrection. The old man dies, the new man comes to life. The new man lives not according to the old ways, but he has the spirit and the power of Christ. This is the only way sinful people can live like this. It is not by power. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Paul didn't change from a murderous enemy of Christ's church to Christ's greatest servant, in my opinion, by a lifetime of effort. Christ took him and changed him. The murderer was gone. The murderer was dead. The apostle had taken his place. And so it is with all of God's people. Though rarely so dramatically as in the case of Paul. The reason folks are controlled by the love of Christ is because in dying for them in love... Christ remade them into people fueled by that love. And I'm not just talking about being impressed by the love of Christ. Like we might be touched by a movie or by a story that we read or hear. We're talking about being born again. Coming to life in a way that we were dead before. We're talking about Christ through his spirit taking up residence in us. Christ was controlled by love. And now that we've been captured by him, and now that we are under his sway, we're controlled by him and by his love. He loves us, and then he transforms us into channels of his love. He shows us his love, and then he shows others his love through us. Of course, I'm not saying that the old self is completely obliterated and no longer exists. That's not the point here. The old self does keep cropping up, just like wild grapes could keep cropping up in the the vineyard out of the ground. This is why we don't do often the things that we want to do. As Paul says in Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. 
for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And when we sin, it doesn't mean that we never really gave ourselves to the Lord. The problem with living sacrifices is that they keep climbing down off the altar. This is why we're continually being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. 1 Peter 3.18, this process that God is working in us. So now let's talk a little bit about living for him who for our sake died and was raised. Living for Jesus. There in verse, where it says this in verse 15, Paul is elaborating on what he said in verse 14. Christ's death results in our death, that is, the death of our old selves. He came to life for us so that we might come to live for him. Christ had a calling, a mission, to die and then live for his people. We as his people have a calling and a mission to die and to live for the Savior. And so Paul is no longer controlled by self-interest. He has a new orientation. He's a new man. Now he lives for the one who died and rose again for him. So what does it mean? What does this new life in him entail? It means no longer living for ourselves, but for him. It means no longer living by ourselves, but with him. And it means no longer living by means of ourselves, but by means of him. That is, by his power and not by our own. Now our lives are for him. And they are with him. And they are by him. The secret of the Christian life is Jesus Christ. He is not only our means of salvation, he is our life every day. And this is not a burden, and it's not a duty, it's a privilege. It is not a sacrifice, it's not something that that requires us to have to give up the really good, fun things of life, it is the greatest joy and privilege a man or woman can ever know. Following Christ is not a matter of giving up on happiness or freedom. That's the lie, of course, that Satan wants us to believe. But following Christ is what we were made to do. And therefore, when we follow Christ, we blossom into who we're supposed to be. We experience freedom and happiness impossible to find anywhere else. Living for yourself, now that's slavery. The drug addict lives for himself. The pornography addict lives for himself. The money lover lives for himself. The attention lover lives for himself. The woman desperate to find a man lives for herself. 
They're all slaves to something. Think about marriage. Most people get married for themselves. In my opinion, they're out to be loved, to be cared for, and they think they're going to find happiness in that. But the two parties are working at cross purposes with each other to a large extent. He's trying to get her to give him something and she's trying to get something from him. And that's why there's so much divorce. And why even those who never divorce are often so miserable. Because their spouse never loves them enough, never cares for them enough, never, and they, and they don't find happiness in it. And then there's the couple who marry for the Lord. They're working together for a common goal. They are supporting each other in serving Christ. Of course it's imperfect. But like soldiers in battle, care for each other and support each other. They're not, about their own, they're not all about their own happiness because they have a higher purpose. But they are happy because they know Jesus the lover of my soul. Now I don't mean to paint this in such a black and white way, of course. No one is in, in a, you know, is perfectly in that kind of a marriage. But, but that's the key to marriage being what it should be. By and large, people in our society either think They think one of two things, generally. They either think that each of us is our own God and we should look into our own hearts for power and for wisdom or they believe there is no God and that therefore there's no meaning to all this and life is completely empty and meaningless. By and large, all the philosophies of life that people have around us They have one thing in common. When they wake up in the morning, they have no one to obey. They have no one to answer to. They have no one to bow to. They have no one to live for. Sure, some people would say, oh, I live for my family. I live for my children. These are the people who fall apart when calamity hits Because suddenly their whole reason for living is gone. But living for Jesus is true greatness. The world is full of people living for themselves. They die and are buried and are forgotten. Their lives are spectacular only in their insignificance. But not the one who lives for Christ. Everything he does has eternal significance. There's a verse that I love in Matthew 10, 41 and 42. Jesus says, The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. 
And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Do you realize what Jesus is saying? You offer a little one, an insignificant person, a cup of water because he's a Christian and you get an eternal reward. You see, just the little stuff we do has eternal significance. You don't have to be a big hero. Serve Christ in little ways. Think about all the reward that people are going to get. You know, that for doing things that they've forgotten about decades ago. Just faithfully doing the Lord's will for their children, for their spouses, for their friends, for their associates, their neighbors. For believers, all that we do for him, for his kingdom, for his glory, it will never be forgotten. It will never be forgotten. Even it may be forgotten for a time. You know, it may be forgotten until, until the new heavens and the new earth, and then it will be remembered forever. I mean, God never forgets it, but we might. It, they, it seems insignificant at the time, often. But it will be glorified on that day and become a part of the beautiful, spectacular story of Christ's kingdom being built and him displaying his glory in the universe. This is also, I think, our greatest witness in the world. Francis Schaeffer said that the greatest Christian apology, apologetic, the greatest Christian apologetic was the love of believers and the quality of their lifestyle. This is, this is what really gets people's attention at work, in your neighborhood, at your family gatherings. People who don't live for human approval. People who don't live for creature comforts. People who do the right thing even to their own earthly disadvantage. People who care for others even for those who don't care for them. People who have an anchor even when calamity strikes. People who are humble even when they get promoted or honored, and yet it doesn't go to their heads. That's what makes people ask, what's with you? What do you have that I don't have? What do you know that I don't know? And then we have the opportunity to tell them, it's Christ. It's all about Christ. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let us pray. Oh Lord, how can we not live for you since you lived and died for us? And dear Lord, we know that you don't want us to live for you begrudgingly. As if it isn't a joyful thing, but a burden. For Lord, living for you is a beautiful thing. And a joyful thing. Though it does involve dying. We thank you that you are in us to empower us to live newly, to live in a way that is not according to just who we are in the flesh, but according to Christ, empowered by Christ. Lord, there may be some here this morning who are trying to live as Christians, maybe, but who really have not experienced being born again, who really don't have Christ in them, who really are still who they were when they were born. We pray, dear Lord, for your mercy upon them, that you would be at work in their souls That you would speak like you spoke to Lazarus and call them out of death into life. Now, Lord, we thank you for the privilege of coming to your table to partake of this sacrament that you have instituted with your disciples. We pray that your presence would be here with us and that you would draw each heart close to yourself. We want to go forth from this place, dear Lord, with our eyes on Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.